Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Bronco Milanovic. Professor Milanovic is a visiting presidential professor at the Stone Center of Socioeconomic Inequality at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. He was formerly lead economist in the World Bank's research department. He's also the author of a number of books, including Capitalism Alone, the Future of the System that Rules the World, which we'll be talking about today. Branko Milanovic, welcome to the show. Well, very nice being there. Thank you very much for inviting me. So where I would like to start is with a very basic definition. It's maybe the social scientist in me coming out, but I think the most basic word we should start with is, well, capitalism. And so I was hoping you could give us a brief overview of what you see as the key features of classical capitalism. Yes, I'm very glad that you asked this question because it is very important to be clear about definition. Let me just first define capitalism and I'm just I'm underlying this is not a definition that I invented and I think we should not go and just invent definitions where things are already in existence. So I'm using a very sort of classical definition that was used by uh, Marx, then it was used by Max Weber, and it continued to be used by large literature. And the definition goes as follows. Uh, You have three parts in the definition. Capitalist system is a system where most of the production is done by profit and using privately owned means of production, meaning privately owned capital. The second part, it says, that under capitalism, labor is legally free and is being hired by capitalists. That's an important part, being hired, meaning it means that essentially labor does not play the entrepreneurial role. The entrepreneurial role belongs to people who own capital. They decide what to produce, how to produce, and then they hire you to do that. And the third part of the definition says that the economic coordination in such a system is done in a decentralized fashion. In other words, you don't have planners, you don't have people who tell you that you need to do this or that. You do it in a decentralized fashion. You decide what to produce, you decide to whom to sell. People decide whether they want to buy stuff from you or not. So this is a very simple definition of capitalism. Now, what is classical capitalism? Then we go into sort of more um, detailed things. And the classical capitalism is the capitalism where you really had a very sharp distinction between capital owners and workers, where basically capital owners had only income from property, from capital that they owned, and workers had only income from labor, which they sell. Now, of course, today's capitalism is very different. And of course, that will be, I'm sure, the discussion that we'll sort of have in the in the rest of the uh, of this conversation. Yeah, a- absolutely. And before we get to that conversation, you know, uh, defenders of capitalism, and there are plenty of them, well, even if they acknowledge the faults of capitalism, they'll say typically that it's done more to raise well, really billions of people out of uh, the the most abject poverty and give them decent lives than any other economic system that's ever existed. And it's not even really all that close, in fact. And so would you agree with that general assessment of the great 
positive attributes of capitalism? Yes, yes, I would definitely agree. You know, I would definitely agree. Obviously, you would, you know, there are some details here and there. You could actually argue that, you know, uh, different systems also performed well during some period of time or they laid, as, as I actually argue in the chapter on China, they laid the groundwork for capitalism to be more successful. Uh, but I think I would definitely agree with the statement that it was capitalism that has actually brought prosperity first to West European countries, then North America, then afterwards to Japan, and nowadays to China. Yeah. And I, the reason I ask that is because I, I find that whenever there is a uh, a book or, or someone who suggests that there might be some issues with a form of capitalism, they're oftentimes branded as somebody who hates capitalism. And, and more often than not, I found that that's just generally not the truth. And so I like to make that clear from the beginning. Yeah, I think it's very good to to make these things clear because I think there is an unfortunate tendency that either people who criticize capitalism tend to denigrate any achievements of capitalism or they are being perceived of denigrating any achievements of capitalism. Yeah. On the other hand, you have the other extreme people who actually argue that everything under capitalism is excellent and natural, a natural system, in quote unquote, and that nothing needs to be even touched or improved. And they have also a somewhat, uh, how should I say, ideological vision of capitalism where they ascribed all the desirable features to capitalism. I think that the reality is much more uh, nuanced. I actually believe, as I said, that capitalism has done really, um, I'm not saying going to say wonders, but has done definitely enormous um, contribution to sort of reducing poverty and increasing income of people in different parts of the world. But it does not mean that it has all the desirable features, so whether it is on the ethical side or in terms of monopolies or in terms of control and so on. So I think uh, we have to have to be more realistic. Yeah. Uh, before we focus more specifically on capitalism, uh, I want to I talk just briefly at least about communism, which really has been seen, I think, in, in the, certainly in the last 100 years, is the only real competitor to, uh, to capitalism. And pretty clearly, as the title of your book indicates, uh, capitalism has won out in that competition after uh, 1989 or so, especially. But I've heard a lot of people, at least on the further left, say, well, not really, because True communism has never actually been tried, so we can't say that it's an inferior system to capitalism, just simply an untried alternative. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, it's, it's also a very good question. I think to be, so how should I say, to be very straight on that, I think it's, it's really a very bizarre argument. Uh, it's a, not only is it only ideological, but it's actually it builds on what I just was before sort of uh, disagreeing with sort of uh, extreme proponents of capitalism is that in this case with people who argue about that 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 real cap uh, communism had never been tried. Essentially, they imagine a system, ascribe all the desirable features to that system, and of course any real world system would fall short of that. And they say, well, you know, you have not tried my system. My system is so good that actually it would do 
really incredible things. And whatever claims to be that system, since it's in real life and since actually produced some very bad outcomes, it's really not my system. So I think it is really, I honestly say it's a meaningless sort of defense. We have to take communist systems as they were, and they had very clear feature that we can all see. You know, they had public ownership or state ownership of the means of production. They had uh, uh, centralized coordination. And this is very much what, of course, communist system always said they should have. And, of course, we have seen that in many respects they have failed. So I think that's the end of the story for me. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I would agree with you on that for sure. Uh, So turning toward capitalism, the type of capitalism we have in the United States is what you term in the book liberal liberal meritocratic capitalism. And so I thought maybe you could explain what that is and how it differs from classical capitalism. Yes, of course, let me first say how it differs from classical capitalism, since we talked about classical capitalism being really essentially a system with very strong cleavage between the two classes, capitalists, which basically have all income from capital and and workers who have all income from labor. Now, in a more modern capitalism, like the United States, you don't have that cleavage which is so strong as in the past. You have nowadays actually uh, rich people who have also very high percentage of their income from labor. It is true that rich people first have larger part of their own income coming from property than others, than the middle class and the poor. And it's also true that they have concentrated most of capital income in their hands. Nevertheless, the division is no longer as sharp as it was, because you also have people who are part of the middle class and who have some capital income, most of that it is through, you know, through their uh, pension funds or, or, you know, investment funds that they have. And this is relatively small compared to the rich, but there is no uh, division which is as sharp or as complete as it was in the past. So that's one very important difference. And I would actually, I'm sure, come later and talk about uh, another feature, which is that very rich people nowadays combine both capital and laboring. Right. But before I do that, uh, let me just finish with the sort of simply answering the question that you asked me, what is meritocratic and liberal capitalism? Meritocratic is used in a very technical term. It does not mean that actually meritocratic, as it's used in a colloquial language where we say something is meritocratic, meaning everybody got what they deserve. It is used in the terms, in the way that John Rawls, political philosopher, used it. And he essentially called meritocratic a system where you don't have legal impediments to reaching some position. Like, for example, in a nobility system where you had nobility or clergy, you could not just become noble. You had to have, I mean, there was a legal definition of who is noble. Uh, now, the the uh, uh, meritocratic system simply means that legal equality between individuals or everybody's sort of equal before the law. But it does not mean that people who are born in rich families have the same opportunity set as people who are born in poor, or rather poor have much less opportunity than the rich. To correct for that, uh, John Rawls called it liberal capitalism, saying that there are at least two uh, corrections that that liberal capitalism would introduce. The first one would be to tax inheritance, so that you have less of an advantage if you're born in a rich family compared to somebody from a middle class or poor. And the second is to have 
accessible public education for everybody so that even poor people are able to actually send their kids to good schools. So that's what is the meaning of liberal and meritocratic. And so then, based on that, the, the question that comes to mind for me, is, at least, is, is inequality sort of an inherent feature of liberal meritocratic capitalism, would you say? Yes, I think in inequality, to some extent, if you ask me in a very philosophical sense, first, it is inherent to humans because we would never be a, a society of perfect equality in any respect because obviously we are different. Even further, if you were to look at a, at a snapshot of inequality at any point in time and assume, for example, that our during our lifetime, we all end up with the same total income you would still have inequality in a snapshot because, for example, today you would have young people who are studying or who are actually just beginning their career, so their incomes would be relatively low, and then you would have people at the peak of their career with high incomes. So we have to realize that you know, inequality and equality are not like binary categories. When we say that there is as I actually believe, that there is too much inequality. We are not saying that somehow we should all be equal and that inequality should be zero. So in other words, what I want to say for the people, for the listeners often, and to my students, I say inequality is like temperature. If you say maybe today is too hot, it doesn't mean that you would really like the temperature to be minus 10 degrees and to go to the North Pole or South Pole. Right. You know, so that's the same for inequality and equality. So, uh, well, let me ask it. Let me ask a different but related question, I guess, is about how just or unjust liberal meritocratic capitalism is. And I'm thinking uh, here specifically in terms of Rawls, you already mentioned, and you cite in the book a number of times, and his first two principles of justice, and that first one being political liberty, and the second one being equality of opportunity. And based on those principles, can we say that liberal meritocratic capitalism is unjust or just? You see, it's a good point to actually, I think on the first one, uh, I think actually that he would agree that actually uh, political liberty has not deteriorated from his times. And, uh, you know, obviously there are can argue there are some issues there, and I'll come to that in a moment, but I think basically that has remained relatively strong. The second part is really whether the society is constructed in such a way that actually it offers equal, equal opportunity to everybody. And I think that the empirical studies for the United States and a few other countries, but let's talk about the U.S. now, really do show that there was there is less equality of opportunity nowadays than was the case in the past. And they also argue and they show empirically that that diminished opportunity is linked to very high inequality in terms of current income or wealth. In other words, if you have very high inequality in income or wealth today, in that snapshot picture that I was talking about, that essentially carries over to the next generation so you diminish equality of opportunity which exists between the rich and the poor. So that's how I would I would see the situation today. Now, I think one response that I've heard uh, to a to an argument like that and data like that is that well, even if 
uh, people would say, okay, inequality has been rising and opportunity isn't as great as it could be, but standards of living in general are going up for everyone. And that if you look, say, today at even the poor, they have things that, well, someone call luxuries or, 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 you know, like, like cell phones and that's often mentioned technology and so forth that wasn't available to even the richest people because it, it didn't exist, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And so in that sense, inequality is not as big of a concern as people often on the left make it out to be. And, and I wanted to get your, your thought on that, on that argument. Yeah, I, I don't think it is a, a technically incorrect. I mean, obviously, there are certain goods which didn't exist 20 or 30 years ago, and nowadays they exist, and they're relatively accessible, and many people have them. I think actually currently in the world, I think we have about 5 million cell phones. Uh, but, you know, this is like being focusing on one thing, which is not irrelevant. It is not necessarily small, but it's one thing. There may be other things. Maybe people have also more TV sets and there is color TV and the past it was black and white and all of that. On the other hand, people also have much harder time, I think, in the United States and actually the middle class has harder time with some goods or services which are absolutely of crucial importance and I dare say even more important than the cell phones. And these are the issues of housing, uh, education and health. And we have seen the relative price of all these three going up. What relative price means that the price of these uh, services has gone up compared to the overall price level. And if you cannot, and if you have difficulty, as if, for example, a family at the median income in the United States to achieve what you consider now desirable or acceptable level of housing, education, and health, you really do have a, a problem. And I think it's a real problem, which then gets also reflected in the political space and dissatisfaction or political votes and so on. And uh, I think it's also a problem, as I was saying before, of inequality of opportunity, because if education is extremely expensive, then obviously your children will not be able to go to schools maybe where they should be going uh, according to their own sort of abilities. And let me just mention, for example, health, which is a big issue, not only now with the coronavirus that we have and where it became very obvious, but it's also an issue which is seen with the decline in the life expectancy among some categories of U.S. population, which is also a remarkable development that we normally do not find other than in conditions of wars, or we found it in Russia uh, after the transition. But it's not really a normal development. And if we look at non-economic inequality, I think a lot of people would say that in many areas, you know, like gender, race, now I think sexual orientation and identity, we've seen some pretty impressive games and some would argue that, well, they're at least partly driven by capitalism under this idea that, well, everyone's money is, you know, equally good no matter what they look like or what they believe. And so, therefore, in a sense, global capitalism has helped to drive social acceptance and social change in these ways. Do you think that's a reasonable argument? Yes, I think it is. And I think one of the uh, features of my book, and I hope it becomes clearer as, as we speak now, is that actually I wanted to bring up, and I, and I think it's true, I think it's desirable that we bring up 
the features which are good and bad and show that actually very often it is difficult, even if you want to uh, sort of fight inequality, it is very difficult to go against certain things which may be unequal, but which fundamentally are good in them. So it's really, I think we have to be very um, or should I say nuanced in these views. Now, going back, strictly speaking to your question, I would agree in the sense that actually what capitalism does, technically it actually treats everybody's money the same. As uh, you know, there was a saying that, um, that money is a great equalizer because you may be of a sort of, I don't know, this or that minority, but if you have money, of course, people are going to accept your money. They are not going to turn it down. And in that sense, we have seen, of course, in the U.S., for example, the gender gap, even in terms of income or you know salaries that are received by women for the same occupation, same job as men, they're still lower, but they actually the gap has steadily diminished. Uh, we have seen also some improvements in the in the ratio between uh, different minorities, especially I mean African Americans and the others. Not as much as in on the gender, and of course we have seen uh, great advances in terms of you know different sexual preferences and so on. Uh, so there is no doubt actually that what is called some people called it existential inequality has gone down. But I have also to point out here that if we eventually end up, and I think we will get there pretty quickly, maybe in the next five or ten years, that the distribution of wages of women and men is the same. So that is irrelevant whether you're a woman or a man. Uh, the, the job is not over because what could happen, and it is actually happening, is the dispersal of the wages becomes very high, both for men and for women. So you can still have a very high overall inequality despite the fact that there is no discrimination. And that also should be understood how that can happen uh, without the discrimination of, based on gender or race or anything else. It do you, uh, before we turn to uh, uh, political capitalism, uh, which I want to get to here in a minute, I've also wondered sometimes, I think a lot of people have wondered if liberal meritocratic capitalism is somehow inherently unstable. We see economic inequality rising, and I think a lot of people are wondering if, if the system is going to somehow self-correct or if we're destined for some sort of a post-capitalist future, as some people have, have termed it. What do you think about that? I don't think it's inherently unstable. Uh, I think it's very dynamic because it is the system which actually generates innovation and generates change. Uh, it's not inherently dynamic because it has the corrective uh, ability, uh, which is really the corrective ability comes from the political system. And we have seen this corrective ability in the past. You know, in the U.S., we have seen it, for example, in the 1920s with the antitrust legislations. Then we have seen it, of course, after the World War II with, uh, you know, um, first actually, of course, during the Depression with the New Deal and after World War II with a number of uh, policy uh, changes, um, especially about education and veterans' education. And then, of course, it continued into the, the 60s. So we have seen this corrective element. Um, let me also mention that when I said before that there within um, current capitalism, there are certain things which might lead to higher inequality, even if they themselves are by the inherently good, I would say, quote, unquote. I, I give two examples which actually make it uh, sort of difficult to 
to judge something to be negative, even if it really adds to inequality. The first one is the, the fact that we have many more couples now who are both very well educated, both members are very well educated, and with high incomes. That alone adds to inequality, and that by itself is kind of a desirable phenomenon being produced by much higher participation of women in labor force, and the fact that people now decide on their own much more frequently whom they want to marry, and they marry people with whom they share lots of in common. But it does add to inequality. Another thing which I sort of emphasize in this book and which was not actually seen before is that we have among the top of the income distribution people who are very rich in terms of property income, capital income, and labor income. That also is better than the situation in the past where you actually had rich people who didn't have to work. But it also does add to inequality if you have the same guys who actually have very high capital incomes and very high labor incomes. So I think, again, we have to to think much more deeply about inequality and how it is being generated. You mentioned the political corrective mechanism, and I think a concern for a lot of folks, especially on the left, I would say, is that Given the enormously high costs of campaigns and how that's changed, that's that's something that's very different from if we look back at, you know, the, the populist movement or even up until the 60s. And that there's a sense that the process has been captured by the not even the one tenth of the one percent, but the one tenth of one percent in a way it never has been before. And so a lot of people are, I think, fairly pessimistic about the ability of of the system as it exists to change. And hence, you know, I, I would argue the attractiveness to a lot of people of someone like, say, a Bernie Sanders. What, what, what do you think? Yes. Yes, I think this is a this is a real danger is that actually we have seen uh, the, the cost of, of campaigns skyrocketing and they're being f- funded in when you look at the percentage uh, of, in, of uh, campaign funding which comes from the top is extremely concentrated. There are empirical papers that show that uh, how, what percentage, and I quote them in my book, what percentage of campaign financing comes from the very, very rich people. And on top of that, this is, I think, only the tip of the iceberg because we do focus on the uh, campaigns and I do focus on also on, on cost of campaigns in my book. But what actually we often forget is that even more money is being sa- spent on lobbies. We actually work, right. you know, 24 seven. Essentially, it's not a thing which happens once every four years or once every two years. It really happens every day. So these two factors to a large extent, um, uh, I think, um, are used to um, either manipulate public opinion or to actually represent it differently so that the policy decisions made by Congress or by President or by by others reflect the interest of those who have money. And I think it is really a a significant danger of uh, keeping accoutrements of democracy, but in reality moving towards something which would look much more plutocratic than than it is now. Now, the one, I guess the biggest... uh, uh alternative system today to liberal meritocratic capitalism is, uh, well, what I've always thought of as sort of authoritarian capitalism, but mostly in the book, you refer to it as political capitalism. And so can you talk a little bit about what political capitalism is and how it differs from uh, liberal meritocratic capitalism? 
Yes, actually, I got a little bit of criticism from others too because I tended to use political capitalism much more frequently than authoritarian, although I do mention authoritarian mm-hmm. yep. term as well. I think authoritarian seems a little bit too strong or maybe somewhat of a value judgment, whereas political, I think, is more uh, accurate description. Now, how it differs, it's actually the definition of political capitalism comes from Max Weber. It is a sort of a capitalistic system where the political power is often used in order to acquire economic benefit. So, in other words, you use political power to essentially make economic decisions that are favorable to yourself or to somebody you know or somebody whom you want to give some privilege and so on. Actually, Max Weber originally used the term for the Roman Republic and actually Roman Empire later, which was a sort of a market-based system. And there are some similarities between the way that uh, the Roman economy was organized and, and modern capitalism, but uh, the political power was often used to actually precisely give advantages to people that you liked and to, to essentially maintain your own political power as well, because if you give them advantages, they are going to support you. So how does it actually apply to China and how does it differ from the United States? I think it is uh, by essentially, as I said before, by using political power to control and to give either punishments or the advantages of this to different private people. I think there are some other characteristics of, of political capitalism, which is the autonomy of the state. In other words, the state is somewhat an external actor. We were just saying before that in the United States, you can actually argue that the government, the state or the legislature are increasingly sort of being overtaken, if you will, by the rich. In the case of political capitalism, I think that autonomy still remains. Another feature of political capitalism, I think, is the absence of rule of law, which doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want, but it means that in special instances where your interests are concerned, you're able to sort of not follow the law or to actually twist the law in a way that actually it suits you. And the third feature is, I think, which many people know in China, but they don't see that as a sort of intrinsic feature of the system, is corruption. Because corruption comes as a result of the absence of the rule of law, and on the other hand, existence of a bureaucracy or you know technocracy that needs to deliver high growth rates. And I think that the contradiction between these two is solved through, solved, quote-unquote, solved by the existence of corruption. You know, it seems to me in those definitions that a number of those characteristics of political capitalism fit, at least to a certain extent, the U.S. system. I'm thinking about uh, using political power to get economic benefits, that sort of rent-seeking or crony capitalism, it's been called, and also twisting the law to get certain results. There are plenty of people who would say that that happens all the time in the United States as well. And so I guess I'm wondering, at our, our, is this sort of a continuum in that sense? I mean, they're not, they're not clear that their clear categories may be in theory, but in practice, it seems like I see some intermingling here. I agree totally. I think that it is a continuum, as you said, you know, we are not really sort of talking about watertight uh, uh, definitions that nothing that we have sort of defined in China or nothing applies in the U.S. and vice versa. I think there is actually a continuum and there are certain features that are shared by both systems. Moreover, I actually think that there is towards the end of the book, I didn't want to expand on that, but I actually 
think that there is a possibility that the, that both systems might move towards some kind of, to, to a large extent, maybe unfortunate convergence where the economic and the political elites would be the same, basically. So in other words, you would have an elite that would have both political power and economic power. Uh, nevertheless, despite what you said about crony capitalism, which actually has taken more importance in the U.S. more recently, uh, I, I think there is still a difference in the sense that the, the cronyism in the U.S. I think often comes from the rich people being able to quote unquote buy the legislation. I think the cronyism in the in the Chinese case comes more often from people making career within the party or the state apparatus, and then when they're sufficiently powerful, then using this power to support, for example, then sons and daughters in private companies at you know high positions where they would make money, or then give these companies advantages, you know, allow them to sort of, as is the case often in China, allow these companies or to invest abroad and to take, make money and so on. So I think it's a little bit of the origin of that power is a little bit different. Then, and it seems to me that the, one of the argument you make in the book is that possibly the key benefit of political capitalism is the, the growth, the economic growth that it generates. And, and certainly you spend a lot of time in the book showing that massive economic growth, so much more so than the, you know, kind of meager by comparison, 2% or what have you that we've had here in the U.S. But the question I, I had when I was reading that is, well, is that the sort of thing that can be sustained? Because especially in the case of China, I wondered to myself, well, how much of that is what's, I guess, sometimes called catch-up growth that's building on or stealing from the innovations and the successes of liberal meritocratic capitalism? Yeah, I agree that, of course, China will, uh, it is, it it is not realistic to really expect that China is going to continue growing at 8% or even 6% forever. Uh, but let me just make two points on that. The first one, we have to acknowledge the success of China, which is quite extraordinary because any, nothing similar has ever happened in history of mankind, uh, because we are talking here about 40 years of uninterrupted growth for more than a billion people, actually. So it is, yeah, I think it started, China started 40 years ago with 1.1 billion and is now at 1.4 billion people. Um, on top of that, of course, you've had similar evolution in Vietnam, and I will come to also other countries. But the second point is that the, uh, the question that one has to ask, is there something in political capitalism where you have a strong a role of the state, which is what is used to be called a state, which is um, determined to help development and growth and has reasonably good bureaucracy, is there something in such a state which would lead it to outperform more diffused and maybe more participative uh, Western type of capital? Right. And I think this is the question that we have cannot answer yet, because despite the fact that China will not continue growing by six, if China and Vietnam and Egypt and countries like Angola and uh, um, uh, Ethiopia do actually continue with very high growth rates, then we might actually have a sort of um, replica of that system elsewhere. For example, we have it to some extent 
in Russia today. We also, you know, have it uh, mentioned Egypt. You can e- even argue that so-called populist leaders in Eastern Europe, like in Hungary uh, or even in Turkey, actually are coming closer to that system. So we cannot exclude the possibility that that system might produce uh, more favorable economic outcomes. Right. And w- would it be would it be right to think that? Because the first thing I'm thinking is, well we wouldn't really be able to have a fair comparison until those countries are, say, roughly at the same level of development, maybe per capita GDP, as the, the rich liberal meritocratic systems. And so that could be a ways off, right? Because China is still far behind yes, the West yes. in that. Okay. Yes, that's true. That could be a ways off. But, you know, still, what what is the importance of that is that you can say that that particular type of or a particular system might uh, carry some uh, advantages for poorer countries that are trying to right. catch up with the West. So then you can say, well, if the Chinese approach is useful for Africa or maybe some countries in Latin America or many countries in Asia, I mean, I can sort of go on and say, for example, Bangladesh, Burma, most of sub-Saharan Africa, then they will be much more likely to sort of move towards that system than towards a more sort of liberal or democratic system that is in principle supported by the West. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, one of the things you mentioned when you talk about uh, political capitalism is that uh, rule of law issue where it's, I think of it as sort of limited or situational rule of law, I guess. And it struck me that there's sort of a balancing act because in a globalized system, there's kind of a balance that those countries have to uh, achieve, right, between, well, the, the you need a certain rule of law to attract foreign investment and be part of global supply chain. And so that's a that's a constraint or a difficulty that's sort of unique to that system, isn't it? Yes, but I think actually like rule of law is very, it's kind of similar to what we discussed about inequality. It is a continuum. So ah. when we say that there is no rule of law, it does not mean some people like wrongly believe that every decision is purely arbitrary and that you have no certainty on anything or that there is no law. Obviously, there is a law. You know, there is a law which is implemented in, in terms like what people are being how they're paid their wages, how they're paid their retirement income, whether you can actually live in the house that you own, whether actually you're renting, as in China, of course, we know, like land is still state-owned, but it's being rented, I think, for 70 years now. So all of that does exist, and it's not fundamentally different from, from what exists in countries with the rule of law. When we say there is no full rule of law, we mean that in some instances, where the state actually believes that the decisions that it needs to take have to be taken regardless of what the legal sort of system says, that's what they do. And in that sense, you do not have, although you might have actually in uh, sort of countries of liberal capitalism, you might have decisions of that nature also in very specific cases or in the cases of war or great sort of, how should I say, um, social tension, but normally you don't. You actually follow procedures. Let me just give you an example, a political example, which is, I think, obvious. I've lived in this country through now two impeachments. The impeachment is a very, very important process. I mean, basically, you're telling whether you, the president should remain or not. You know, 
and it went through all the legal channels. Whether you know different sides played different legal channels, tried to over you know to move the system toward their side or not, but eventually there were outcomes, and the outcome was acknowledged by everybody. Um, it is more difficult to see that happening in a system of political capitalism. In other words, they would not allow, even if there were some sort of legal um, uh, means to do certain things, like I suppose quasi impeachment. This would not be allowed to play out. No. It would be used politically. One side or the other side would prevail, or either the, system, the, 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 the process would be stopped, or the leader would be overthrown, or something would happen. Right. Yeah. So that's what I mean, that in some instances you don't have uh, rule of law. Gotcha. Yeah, I think it's, it's an important uh, distinction to make there. Now, in a way sort of related to this is the issue of corruption. And I got to say, I, I enjoyed the whole book, but... Your discussion of corruption in political capitalism was was just fascinating to me. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why it is that corruption is essentially baked into political capitalism, something that never occurred to me before, and also why it's not the same in liberal meritocratic capitalism. You know, I think it's baked into the political capitalism because of the fundamentally two contradictory objectives which they have. On the, one have. on the one hand, they have the objective of growing or maintaining very high growth rate for which they need a bureaucracy that is very efficient, that is very highly qualified. And of course, we know that China had had a millennial system of public examination where the best people would actually get to best schools and then get the best jobs. And we actually see that the, the level, I think, most people think that the level of Chinese bureaucracy or the level, for example, of Taiwanese bureaucracy or the level of um, uh, Singaporean bureaucracy, Singapore is another example of political capitalism, is really extraordinarily high. I mean, let me just mention for Singapore, people have been talking now about the handling of the coronavirus and Singapore seems to have handled it much better than anybody yeah. else on this earth. So, uh, that was one requirement. But the second requirement, second part of the, second, not the requirement, but the feature of the system is, as we were saying before, is the absence of rule of law so that actually you cannot apply always the, the law. And I think it is the contradiction between these two is that you, you have to tell the, the, uh, the officials who are working and who are sort of making the decisions, okay, you know, you have to be the best people, you have to follow the rules. but there is a case where really you should not follow the rule. And this is the case where the sort of arbitrariness creeps in and corruption appears. So in other words, it is really the corruption comes between the, it's a, because these two features are contradictory. And the corruption, I think, is an inherent part of the system. And we actually see now with this anti-corruption campaign in China, they published quite a lot of numbers. And you have seen some of the stuff that I mentioned there, which is really comes from the official publications that the Chinese um, the Communist Party, there is a special uh, group within it, which is sort of working on corruption. And the numbers are quite astonishing. You know, when they tell you that when they had so much, there was a guy who had so much money, and he was a very high official in the Communist Party, so much money that when they brought I think seven or eight money uh, um, bill counting machines, they broke down because after a while they just sort of uh, were overwhelmed. Actually, the machines could not count so many 
you know, note. Yeah. And these are actually striking things. And that's why I think that, uh, that the, the campaign, which now has a little bit forgotten because of the virus, but it really is going on, is a campaign whose objective is not to eliminate corruption totally, because that, I think, is impossible, but whose objective is to reduce the extent of corruption so that it does not uh, sort of destroy the internal logic of the system. And I do think, and like, just to finish with that, I think that actually corruption is the main threat to the, to the political capitalism in China. And, and corruption also, from an, an economist standpoint, corruption is an economic inefficiency, right? Yeah, corruption in general is inefficiency. You know, there are some papers who argue that sometimes it could be efficient if the rules are made in such a way that, of course, you cannot do certain things and accomplish something. So in order actually to speed things up, you actually make corruption do some corruption. Um, you know, I think there is a difference to be made between the, the low-level corruption, which actually might in some cases sort of have this advantage that actually you speed up things, and uh, the high-level corruption, which is called also state capture, which basically is uh, doesn't have, to my, to, to, in my view, any positive feature. Is essentially you uh, take the the levers levels of levers of the state and impose the decisions that are in your interest. So that I think is it's a this is more of the cronies type, yeah. and which I think is all negative. Now, I, you know, in when we think about global capitalism, uh, it seems to me that at least for a long time it was assumed to be sort of a a net benefit for almost everyone, kind of a win win, but. Recently, at least in the last, I don't know, decade or so, it seems to me that more people, including some economists, are sort of rethinking that in the sense that local national losses, I guess you could call them, have been greater than anticipated and various trade adjustment policies haven't really come close to getting displaced workers back to where they were, at least in terms of wages and benefits. And it seems to me that's certainly part of what animates President Trump and many of his supporters. And I'm wondering, since you know you've you've studied these issues an awful lot, do you get the sense that global free trade was oversold to a certain point, at least in the United States? Yes, I do think so. You know, and I'm actually with Christopher Flagner, the author of what many people have sort of uh, used, which is this, you know, somewhat well known or uh, even famous, uh, the elephant chart, which actually basically yeah. looks at. Uh, the effect of globalization and technological change from the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So they actually, it was rather fortuitous that we had fairly good data from 1988 until 2008. And now we have extended, actually have extended now to 2013, the data, and maybe even 2015. Anyway, the bottom line there is essentially what you do notice, and which is really a political problem in the rich countries, is that you have people who are relatively well off in terms of global income distribution because, you know, the people of the lower middle class in the United States are still around the 75th or the 80th percentile in the world. So they're really relatively well off in the world distribution. But they have really seen very little growth compared to two other groups, uh, the first one being people in Asia, or you can call the Asian middle class, it's not only China, it's also India, Indonesia, Vietnam, and so on, who are actually much poorer than the middle class in the U.S., but they have grown much faster. You know, we are talking about 
just to leave China alone now, but you're talking about Vietnam, which actually had on 20 years, they actually, that group of people had a doubling of their real incomes. Whereas in the United States, the increase in real income was like in, in single or at most double digit numbers, like 10% or 7%. And then finally, they have also lost out compared to their own national top 1%. So if you're now, let's suppose you're a sort of an American middle-class guy, uh, leaving aside all the issues about whether your job would be there, whether you're like in a precarious position, whether you actually, that job might have been already, previous job might have been shipped somewhere else. You do actually look left for people who are, I suppose, poorer than you, and you see them in Asia sort of sort of catching up with you. And then you look right towards people who are richer than you, richer Americans, and then you see the top 1% really doing extremely well and being sort of very happy with the globalization, technological change, and policy changes which have happened. And that's where I think you don't feel very happy with the outcome of globalization. So I think you're essentially feeling squeezed between a competition coming from less well-paid, but maybe equally educated or equally skilled workers from Asia, and somewhat of a lack of concern for whatever happens to you from your own national top 1%. In, in looking at the future of global capitalism, you're actually a lot more optimistic than, than some people, in one area at least, and more optimistic than I am about uh, artificial intelligence and, and, and robots and that sort of thing. And, and basically, it seems to me that your argument is that we've, we've seen this before, and in the race between... Uh, technology and education, as it's called, we've always managed to find and create new jobs. But I think a lot of people now are saying, well, this time is different because we're getting to the point where technology is able to do things that that match even the highest uh, human abilities. And so you don't think that, though, it seems to me. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, I don't uh, don't see it like that. Of course, you know, technology can actually, with artificial intelligence, can indeed replace some of the things that are considered today, uh, you know, highly skilled. So in that sense, we are, of course, moving upwards. And I think it's very logical that we should move upwards. I mean, if you go 200 years ago, when we had, you know, Genie and the machines that actually did cotton picking more efficiently, we were replacing a very unskilled labor. Then we start replacing, of course, more skilled labor. I mean, in my own lifetime, I remember that we used to have, for example, people who were travel agents. We don't have them anymore. We don't. We have replaced them. We don't have people who are actually uh, in in supermarkets. We don't have any more people. We basically deal with machines. So we have actually replaced it. And then I think. Possibly in the future, we could also replace, and we are already replacing, for example, I've, I've actually listened to a very nice presentation about diagnostics. For example, when you look at the diagnostics, like let's suppose you look at the uh, skin cancer, uh, the, the machine is much better there than the best doctor, they say, because the machine can look at the millions of cases and then compare your skin to millions of cases, and even the best doctor that you had would actually probably had maybe 100 cases in his life. So there are certain parts where, of course, the machines would replace even highly skilled labor. 
And that particular highly skilled labor, as in the past, low-skilled labor, has good reasons to be concerned, including maybe professors who may be replaced by even better professors who would teach to everybody in the world. And, you know, these who are not the best would actually not have anybody to teach. So they're really uh, sort of replacements there, and they're really labor issues there. But I think epistemologically, we are unable to see what new jobs would be created by that new technology. And historically, we have seen that when we had technological change, we'd suddenly create myriad of jobs that obviously we cannot know that they would exist. You know, 30 years ago, nobody would, have, would be able to tell you what are all these jobs that are now linked with IT, with technology, with computers, with software, with ability to do, you know, uh, uh, three-dimension uh, printing, all that, nobody would tell you that. Because simply, if they knew that these jobs would be coming, they would be millionaires themselves because they would actually invest and they would do that themselves. But nobody knew that. So likewise, we are in the same situation now. We cannot really uh, see the jobs that must be forthcoming simply because we don't know how the new technology will play out. That's sort of a failure of imagination, I guess. I think, no, I think, uh, uh, I think, Mike, I think it's actually deeper. I think it's epistemological. It's something that we cannot know. It's actually, there was a, uh, uh, Taleb has a nice story in his book, I think it was in Anti-Fragile, where he says, let's suppose you're in a Stone Age consultant, and then you have to ask a, a note, like what will happen with the new technological change? He says, if you say there will be a wheel, then you already know there is the existence of the wheel, so the wheel is already there, so yeah. you know you know it. But you know you cannot know it because nobody has invented right, the right, wheel. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that makes you sense. Yeah. So that's I think it's a catch. It's uh, to some extent catch twenty two, but it's a catch twenty two epistemological catch because we cannot fundamentally see that. So what we see is simply we see the the number of jobs that exist now. So it's a hundred, and we say look. This machine is going to replace artificial intelligence. It's going to replace 17 or 18 or 22 of those jobs. What are these guys going to do? But we don't see that there will be some jobs, maybe 25, maybe 85 new jobs that will be created. Now, of course, there will be a mismatch because if you replace a professor, he may not be able to do the job we has been trained for 40 years to do, you know, teaching to students. He cannot do something which will be in demand now. So there is always this mismatch, and I think that would continue. Yeah. And so that's that's the role of what well, I guess we would hope, uh, at least on the left, we would hope very strong uh, job retraining and uh, adjustment adjustment policies and programs. If you don't really we don't really see to the extent that maybe we will be needing them in the future, I would think. Yeah, we might need actually, you know, retraining. We went, you know, to some extent, I think we are better on, in that area than we were in the past, simply because I think the, there is a greater emphasis nowadays on more sort of general things that we know, like, for example, philosophy or math and things like that are not specific to a given job. They're actually much broader and you can actually be, so to speak, retrained throughout your life. Yeah. And I think we have more and more of that. Uh, however, you know, there are certain occupations that would, you know, have to, to bear the brunt of that. And maybe, you know, it is also very difficult, I mean, objectively speaking, to start retraining somebody who is 50 and who has been doing certain things for 20 years or 30 years. You cannot really do that easily. So, you know, there will be other things, maybe, you know, early retirement, for example, and, and um, uh, 
other sort of social transports and other things. But, uh, you know, I, I'm just saying I don't see the the sort of argument for this catastrophic logic that there would be no jobs. And I'm arguing not because I see these jobs and I cannot tell you what they be, will be, but I'm simply arguing from the analogy right. that we have seen the same fear for 200 years. People go and read, you know, Ricardo from 19, uh, from 18, I think 1813 or 1816, uh, the, the principles of political economy when he talks about machinery and replacement of labor. So it's the same thing that we now see 200 years later. Yeah. One, one final question for you. Uh, are you optimistic about the future of capitalism? You know, I'm optimistic because I'm basically, as you have seen from the last question, I do have a sort of a strong feeling of technological optimism. And I think that technological optimism carries into the number of jobs. And it, of course, affects also uh, climate change. I believe that actually with right policies and with the right incentives and right technology, we would be able to deal with climate change as well. So in that sense, I'm very optimistic. Where I'm pessimistic is really the last part of my book, where I think that the intrinsic features of capitalism lead us, particularly of this hyper-commercialized capitalism, lead us to uh, sort of take these principles of profit maximization and self-interest very seriously in our ordinary lives. And that essentially, I think, then uh, makes us into the sort of capitalist calculating machines where every activity, every leisure time is having, is having a shadow price and we basically behave like small capitalists ourselves in our private life. And that, I think, is fundamentally um, inimical or antithetical to uh, family relations and to close relations with friends and others which are not based in principle on uh, uh, profit maximization yeah. or self-interest alone. Yeah, and that, my gosh, that, that, that could be a whole other conversation, certainly, but, <laughs> but, but we will end here for now. Uh, uh, Branko Milanovic, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, Mike. It was a really a pleasure. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.